as we get ready to get into Ephesians. There's, a, there's an old hymn that's been stirring in my heart this week. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. I'm mixing up the melody horribly right now. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Let's pray. Father, I don't know about other churches, God, but we're a church that needs that message. We're a church that needs reminded that when we're plunged beneath the flood that, that's poured out of Christ's veins, that we lose all our guilty stains. And Lord, we come here needing that reminder and needing that redeeming miracle that you, O gracious God of heaven, would wash us clean by the blood of your own Son. Lord, I pray that you would keep that in our minds. Keep your riches in our minds. Keep your work in our minds. as we were singing earlier of our unwavering hope, I am so grateful that what we hope in is completely unwavering. Because I know at times I am not unwavering. That I can waver all over the place. But you and your promises are steadfast and true and they don't move an inch. Lord, we thank you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Very early in my marriage, my wife and I took a shoestring budget trip to Europe. Uh, being a shoestring budget, it had some... Uh, We'll just say some interesting settings and experiences, but that, that's not the point of this right now. But as we were walking about in various cities in Europe, we would see tour buses navigating down these narrow streets with people pouring out, following an agenda set by some sort of travel company, having to have like an earpiece in to hear whatever the expert had to say. And to us in our 20s, it looked like a whole lot of lack of freedom for a vacation. And so we would walk and we'd be walking through some, say, Roman ruins and see this bus. And we would comment to each other how great it was to be able to just go at our own pace, to do our own thing, to have this level of freedom. 
and uh, we would go through ancient sites, we'd go through museums, we'd go through all kinds of stuff, admiring the beauty, admiring the architecture, and not always knowing what we were looking at, but we had the freedom to just roll into a random gelato stand and see if the quality held up, and it did. <laughs> Over halfway into our trip, we found ourselves in London, and we went to the Winston Churchill War Rooms Museum. It is all underground, and it's they once World War II ended, they, they sealed this up, and then quite a while later, they opened it and found that everything was left untouched the way it was during World War II, the, whether it was a map room or a sleeping room or a boardroom, all of it was left untouched. But part of the admission for this museum, and it was required, was that you would have a virtual tour guide, this little device that looked like a, this is gonna date me a little bit, looked like a cordless phone, and you would have numbers, and you'd get up to each display, and you'd punch in the numbers, and you'd listen to the virtual tour guide talk about that. Now, this was the only place we had a tour guide of any kind. And it was so enriching to what was there. Like, had I gone there on my own, I would have read some of the placards. I would have gone, oh, this is nice. Oh, that's cool. And I would have moved on. I learned more at that museum than any other museum. I saw more of what was happening because I had this virtual travel guide that forced me to slow down and take in that which I was seeing. It was there to make me understand the profoundness of these rooms that just had old furniture, old blankets, old maps, old whatever, and it became one of my favorite stops because I came out of it knowing so much more than I went going in. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, is like a gospel tour guide. And he's saying to the people, we have this great God, we have this great gospel, but he writes it in such a way that you have to slow down. Because if you read it fast, you just get through these, these great big words, these great big illusions of the gospel, and you have to go back and you have to take it in to make sure you don't miss the point of it. You don't miss the message of it. He makes sure we realize the broadness and the depth of the gospel in a much broader way than we ever would just simply walking by a display. And so today, we have a lot to take in and a lot to consider, both in looking at what we're saved from and in looking at what we are saved to. So if you have your Bible out, if you, whether it's your, your, your big Bible, your your electric Bible or your, your scripture journal Bible that we still have some back there if you want to grab one. Let's start reading at verse 7 of Ephesians 1. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according 
to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, God has lavishly blessed us with salvation through rich redemption. When we read the Bible, one of the things we need to do is pay attention to the specificity found in the text of the Bible. You see, we can grow accustomed to just speaking very generally about the gospel. Oh, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and summarize all of it to just those two words, one of which doesn't count if you're listing it in alphabetical order. And we get so accustomed to just saying the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, there's times where that, that brief Summary of something that is gigantic, life-changing, eternity-altering. Sometimes that brief summary is appropriate, but there's other times and a lot of times where we need to look at the specifics of the salvation given to us by God. So one of the things we need to do is, is we need to treat the gospel as, it, as it's given to us through Scripture kind of like a really big diamond, Really big, finely cut, perfectly polished diamond. And sometimes the Bible will say, look, a diamond. And we go, ooh, a diamond. It's beautiful. And other times the Bible will zoom in and say, look at this cut of the diamond. Look how clear it is. Look how when the light hits that cut of the diamond, how it refracts out to the wall. And we look just at specifically a couple of angles of that diamond, marvel at the, the beauty of the stone, the clarity of the stone that's like glass, and how well it has been cut. This is one of those times. This is one of those times where, where Paul is zooming us into a very specific cut of the diamond. In him, in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Let's look at this cut of the diamond. We have redemption. In Christ we have redemption. There is a common old story of a, of a boy who made a sailboat with his dad and finally crafted it. They worked for, for days and weeks in the wood shop, getting just the right angles, just the right cuts, gluing everything together meticulously, but also securely, putting on a bright red paint so it would stand out, getting together the sails so they could, they could move with the wind. And they, he put this together and they would go out on days that were just a little bit breezy and they would let it sail and they, they lived by one of the great lakes and they would let it go just a little bit but always keep it close. And one day the boy went out without his dad and he let the boat go and he's watching it and a gust of wind came up that he wasn't expecting and took it out out of reach and kept it going. 
Well, he knew how lakes work. He knew stuff washed up. He had spent a lot of time as a boy walking the shore, finding stuff that had washed up. So he went, spent the next, the next weeks looking, scouring the shoreline for a bright red boat. Never found it. But in the midst of this, he was walking through town and a little shop in town had a bright red sailboat in the display window. And he ran in. It looked just like it. So he ran in and he's looking at it and he's scouring the detail. This is it, this is it, this is it. And then finally, he found the spot where he had carved his own initials into it. A hidden spot that only he would know. And he found it. And he went to the store owner. He goes, this is my boat. I lost it. And the store owner goes, well, that's great. But a fisherman found it out in the lake, brought it into me, and I... I paid good money for that. And so you're welcome to buy it, but I can't give it away. So the boy went and he worked and he worked and he worked and he earned the money and he bought the boat from the ship owner and he held it in his hands. He said, I love this boat. It is now twice mine for I have made it and I have purchased it. That's redemption. That's redemption. That we are twice gods. He has made us in his image. We belong to him because he's the creator, we're the creation. But we have rebelled, we have sinned, we have gone away, we have been lost in our wandering, in our sin, in our struggles. And he has bought us back. You have been bought with the blood of the Lamb is what Paul tells the Corinthians. In Hebrews 9.12, we are told that the blood of Christ offered a redemption that the blood of bulls could never secure. In Hebrews, or not in Hebrews, in Revelation 5, the song rings out as the Lamb opens the seal, worthy is the Lamb. who is redeemed through his blood. You have been redeemed. You have been bought back. You have been purchased out of your lostness. After being made by God and wandering away, you have been bought back. You have been ransomed from death. You have been redeemed. Through his blood, for the forgiveness of trespasses. Now, this is an important part of looking at those edges of the diamonds because we're not just told of our, of our salvation through terms of redemption, where other parts of the Bible may describe it as uh, new life and newness or as uh, justification or deliverance. Here it is redemption, the purchase of blood. But we also need to pay attention to how it describes our sin. Forgiveness of our trespasses. Sometimes even in saying forgiveness of sin, we, we can lump up a lot of things. But here there's a specific picture of our sin, and that is that we're trespassers. We are violators of the rule of God. That we have not just gone against, that we have perpetrated 
This is an offense. This isn't that we have somehow innocently sinned. Oh, I'm a sinner by nature. You know, I just can't help it. But this is, I have broken God's rule. In a few weeks, we'll get to Ephesians 2, where Paul will tell these faithful servants of Christ in Ephesus that all of them were dead in their trespasses. All of us have trespassed the rule of God. It's more than being lost. This is outright guilt. In Adult Bible Fellowship, which meets before the service, we are starting to step into the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says, hey, you've you've heard it said, don't commit murder. And I'm telling you, if you have hated someone, if you hate someone in your heart, you have committed murder. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you lust after someone in your heart, that is adultery. He goes on to loving our enemies, to not worrying, not being filled with anxiety. He he directs us in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is just a problem, that we should be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. That we shouldn't curse those who curse us. We are violators of the rule of God. There's an old apologetic that's used by by some quite frequently that is to hold up the Ten Commandments and people say, oh, I feel like I've done pretty good and then bring in the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, so you're a liar, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, You covet what's not yours. And the text here in saying that we've been forgiven of our trespasses is also telling us that before Christ, we very much have trespasses that need forgiving. That this isn't, hey, a lot of you are trespassers. This is, no, you're a trespasser. We need to look at our guilt, but we also need to look at what God does with our guilt, this forgiveness of our trespasses. That that the Lord in Christ, through the blood of Christ, would look at our trespasses, that he would nail them to the cross, not in part, but the whole. Not for our open shame, but for the open shame of the accuser. That he would separate them from us as far as the east is from the west, that he would put them to the bottom of the sea. Several years ago, I had a group of men up in the Boundary Waters, or as I like to call it, Paradise. And we had spent a day, each of us lugging around a rock that was about the size of a softball to think about the sin in our life, specifically the sin that we just tolerate, that we just don't deal with, that we tend to not think is a problem but to think also about our sin and the burden that it is. And then at night we went out to a part of the lake that was 130 feet deep and we let go of our rocks, knowing that nobody will ever see those rocks again. And that is what the Lord does with our trespasses. He separates them so far away from us that nobody 
will ever see them again. You are redeemed through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of your trespasses. So what does the all-knowing, all-powerful God of heaven base this redeeming action on? What does he do it? What, by what means does he do it? He does it according to the riches of his grace. Pastor and commentator Kent Hughes brings up John D. Rockefeller at this point, who at the time was the richest man in the world. And there was a, a famous photograph of John D. Rockefeller putting a coin into the cup of a begging child. And Kent Hughes argues that, that Rockefeller gave out of his riches, that he opened up his pocketbook or, or maybe just dug into his pocket and said, I have some wealth, here's a little bit of it. But he did not give according to, he gave out of but not according to, that for Rockefeller to give according to his riches would be to take that young boy, set him in a house on a sprawling estate with a car in the garage and a stable house out back. But instead, he gave out of his riches and gave a little bit of money that may have meant a little bit to that boy for the next hour, but didn't really change anything. But God gives according to his riches. That he makes us co-heirs with Christ. That he is pulling out of his unlimited storehouse of treasure. God gives not a few cents out of his pocket, but in a way that matches his unmatched wealth, in a way that reflects his unmatched wealth. Theologian Carl Hodge calls this an overflowing abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God and freely accessible in Christ. When we are saved according to the riches of God, it is an overflowing abundance of unmerited love, inexhaustible in God and freely, freely accessible through Christ. Isn't this good news? What if God saved you according to your ability to turn your life around? What if God saved you according to the hope that you hadn't done anything too bad yet? What if God saved you according to what your parents or grandparents had done, hoping you would do the same? There's very little hope offered in any of those. But instead, God saves you according to his riches, which he lavished on you. That he looks at you as, as, now bear in mind, I'm including myself in this before you get offended. He looked on you, he looked on me as wretched and pitiful and deserving of hell 
and deserving of his wrath and steeped in trespass and sin, a violator of his law. And he said, I have a bucket of grace. And he just dumped it on you as though you were a coach who had just won the Super Bowl. He just lavishes it upon you. Have more grace. Let me give you more. Let me, tomorrow when you wake up, there's going to be even more waiting for you. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. More and more and more. Several years ago, I don't remember the passage, I don't remember the date, but I remember Dave, Pastor Dave preaching, and he, he talked about a painter who painted Niagara Falls and spent, I don't know how much time there, but a long time there to paint Niagara Falls, to get the mist coming out just right, to get the trees and the rocks just right, to get everything just right. And, the, and he ended up, someone said, what are you going to title the painting after watching water come over these waterfalls for, for months? And he titled the painting, More to Come. Isn't that a great picture of the grace of God? The riches that he gives according to the riches. And he lavishes it upon us. This is not a one-time thing. This is continual. That the riches of God... exceed the depths of our sin. The riches of God are greater than our brokenness. The riches of God outspend our trespass. And it's not even close. There's this phrase in here next, and people are really torn on where to put this phrase. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. I'm going to actually put it in the next section, but it applies here as well. God did not pour his lavish riches of grace on somebody else and some splashed on you and you got accidentally saved and now God's trying to figure out what to do with you. One of the things Ephesians makes abundantly clear is that if you're a Christian, God did it on purpose. There's not a single person who calls God their father that God isn't like, oh, I didn't mean to save them. Shoot! You know how like you're at work and you get paired up with people for a project or to travel somewhere for work and you get put in a car with someone you didn't mean to get put in a car with? That's not how God views you. He lavished his grace on you with the same wisdom and insight with which he created the universe. He did it on purpose. He wanted to save you. He wanted you to be his child. He wanted you, if you're here today and you're thinking, oh, I'm not his child yet, I haven't believed in him, I'm still trying to figure out, well, he wants you to experience this lavish grace. He wants you to have these trespasses forgiven. He wants to save you from that. 
And he wants to save you to an insightful inclusion. And in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God does something with his children after he saves them that always amazes me. Think about for a moment the human track record known as being the people of God. It's not great. It's not great at all. It hasn't been the best. Especially, you know, we go back to this point in history, early into the new covenant. What have the people God done up to this point? Well, they worshiped a whole lot of other gods. They had civil war and strife between themselves for the, the bulk of their history. They got sent into exile. They kind of got their act straightened up in terms of idolatry, but then they came back super legalistic, adding rules to what God had given them. And even now, as we look back at human history, within the second covenant, we have the people of God leading the crusades. We have preachers in our own country twisting the scripture to justify slavery. To say that black Christians shouldn't be allowed to have the same holdings as white Christians. There's a, a preacher and commentator I've grown to really appreciate named Ray Ortland, and he likes to show a picture taken in a church of a bunch of guys in white robes with white pointy hoods under a banner that says Jesus saves. And as people were capable of that. And yet God in his mercy doesn't save us and say, now get out of the way so I can do it some more. But at times I wonder if he should. God could do infinitely more than I can. If the Lord came here and pastored you himself, you would be so much better off. If the Lord came here and taught our ABF classes and Bible studies himself, oh man, we'd be better off. But he doesn't. He includes us in his redeeming work. After saving people, God brings them in. Through all of the wrong we've done, all the wrong we still will do. Oh. He draws us in deeper. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. He saves us and then goes, you want to know something? I want to do this everywhere. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. You know what? You want to know something? There's injustice around you. And it's my plan to use you to confront, that in, to confront injustice with the kingdom of God. There's orphans and widows and you get to care for them. 
in their distress. There's poverty and marginalization that shouldn't be. So I'm going to use you to help correct it, all the while proclaiming the name of Christ. There's a covenant that is available to all people. You know, when you go to a concert or a sporting event, you buy a ticket, and that ticket gets you in the door, and that ticket means you have a guaranteed seat to see something unfold that you've really been looking forward to. Maybe it's your favorite band, maybe it's your favorite team. That ticket allows you into the arena, and once you're in there, you can walk all over the place. You can check out trophy cases. They really want you to check out merchandising tables and concession stands. You can walk around and view the stage and view the field of play from different angles. But you cannot go into the locker room and hear the halftime speech. You cannot enter the sound booth and mess with the knobs. Amen. <laughs> you can get in and see a lot of things you don't, you don't get any say in what the set list is for the band. You, you don't get a heads up on when your favorite song's coming so you make sure you're not in the bathroom. You don't get any of that with the ticket. When God saves us, he doesn't give us a ticket so that we can have a seat to watch him do stuff. He says, come along, you're going to help me. He makes known to us His will. He makes known to us His purposes. He lets us know about His plan that He set forth in Christ. All of this is the Lord's, and He brings us in. He lets us know it. You remember what Jesus told the disciples the night before He was betrayed? He goes, look, I, I call you friends because I make known to you my plans. This is a level of inclusion that we could never have asked for. And God gives it to us. And he doesn't do it recklessly. He doesn't do it thinking, oh, I hope this works out. He does it with all wisdom and insight. And he's made, made it known to us because we're part of the execution of it. A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth, that all things would be brought together under the authority of Christ, all things aligned in some way with Christ, whether it's through willful submission or subjugation, that all things would be brought together under Christ, who's the creator of all things, making all things for himself and holding them together in himself. The great John Stott says that in the fullness of time, God's two creations, his whole universe and his whole church will be unified under the cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of both. And we get to participate in that. We are part of God's will, not just as his will to save us, but his will to use us 
to proclaim the greatness of Christ. Whether that would be within your own home, to your neighbors, in your classroom, in your workplaces, from dog patch to donut hut, to make Christ known. I want you to see a few things here. First of all, you were richly redeemed to benefit from the purpose and will of God. God is pleased to do all of this. It's his desire, it's his will, it's his purpose to save us, to redeem us. Second, you were richly redeemed to participate in the purpose and will of God. You were saved to know and join the Lord. May all we do say think in all the ways we serve, in all, all the things we give ourselves to, may our redemption be evident for us. May the redemption available be evident to others as we engage elements of injustice, as we extend mercy, as we proclaim the gospel, as we send out for gospel pioneering among unreached people groups. May our redemption and the redemption available to all be evident. Now, having been richly redeemed from and richly redeemed for, live for it. Live for this. Don't miss out on it. Stay focused on the redeeming will of God. Don't, don't settle for less, but, but give yourself to this. Don't chase or, or settle for all the things that you've been redeemed from. Don't give yourself to past addictions, past pitfalls. Don't give yourselves to the lies of the evil one that says, you'll never be enough. You're too screwed up. God wouldn't want to use you. Don't give yourself to that. Don't give it any airtime in your heart. You have redemption in Christ. Forgiveness of your trespasses by his blood. God has made known to you his precious purpose and will. Stott says this, John, John Stott, we so easily and naturally slip into preoccupation with our own petty little affairs. But we need to see time in the light of eternity and our present privileges and obligations in the light of our past election and future perfection. Then, if we share the apostles' perspective, we would also share his praise. For doctrine leads to doxology as well as to duty. Life would become worship and we would bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. If you haven't done so yet, repent turn, not turning to an aimless nothingness, but turning to a well-carved path of the will of God. 
started out by failing to sing the first verse of the fountain filled with blood. I tell you what, I got, I got the melodies from those songs that the praise team led us so well in in my head, I couldn't, I couldn't get off of it. So I'm just going to recite the last verse. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, not the last verse, one of the verses. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. And shall be till I die. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Oh, that the redeeming love of the Lord would be that great theme in our lives. To move us, not only from what we've been saved from, but to move us well into what we are saved for and to. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us that you would not only save us, but that you would draw us in, not just to be your children, but to be your servants, to carry out your purpose, to carry out your will. And Lord, we long for the day that at the fullness of time, all things would be united. On heaven, in heaven and on earth, all things would be united under the glorious headship and reign of Christ. Lord, thank you. Thank you for making this known to us, for drawing us in. We praise you, our redeeming God. Amen.